what now I've come to understand empowerment as is recognizing that it's a self-directed phenomenon. It's always a self-directed phenomenon. No one else is ever healing you. No one else is ever transforming you. No one else is ever fixing you. No one else should ever have authority over your internal state. No one else should be making demands of you. Nothing needs to happen. You can do whatever you want, right? Drop into the understanding that this is an inside-out process. It requires my active participation for it to work. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming back to the podcast. You're tuning into Unfiltered Sash with Sasha Andrianova. I'm your host, Sasha, and oh my goodness, I am so excited for this conversation today. Today, Adriana Williamson, who is a breathwork and meditation facilitator, as well as transformation journey coach, is coming on the podcast to share more about meditation, healing through breathwork, moving through resistance and challenge, empowerment through self-guided practices. We also talk about technical versus relevant truths, the intellectualizing mind, resistance as a physical sensation, and so, so much more. I have learned a lot from this conversation. And most importantly, it's really an opportunity to look inwards and see how you might find a modality or a tool that helps you connect more deeply with yourself. This podcast is all about inspiring and empowering you to connect with your most authentic and embodied self through different tools, healing modalities, and ways of viewing the world. So how can you take what you hear today and maybe try it on, apply it, and see if it helps you deepen that understanding of your inner self? Without further ado, let's head into the conversation. I am so excited to have Adrian Williamson on the line. He is a breathwork and meditation facilitator and coach. I had the absolute joy and pleasure of being guided on a one-hour breathwork experience with him earlier this year in January at Happy Space in New York, which I understand they've recently rebranded to Angles. So if you're looking to check it out, it's Angles in the Lower East Side. So I had the pleasure of really undergoing a transformative breathwork experience. It was really deep, rhythmic, meditative breathing for about an hour. And I accessed a whole new level of consciousness. That is what we're talking about today, breathwork and meditation as vehicles for your own personal connection with yourself. You're on transformation, and I'm so excited. Adrian, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Say hi to everyone listening today. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Thank you also for having me on. It's a joy to be able to share these sort of practices, which have had such a, a transformative impact in my own life. So any opportunity to share is always a treat. So thank you, too. Awesome. Did I leave anything out about your background or anything you want everyone to know or understand heading into this conversation about what you do? So in addition to breathwork, meditation, facilitating group experiences, working one-on-one -on -one with people, I began working with children with autism, neurodivergent individuals, some of whom are now adults that I continue to work with. And there was something about connecting to people in non-ordinary states of consciousness, expanded states of consciousness, which I'm so grateful for that time I had to practice, to just practice non-judgment, compassion, 
a sort of unconditional patience and cultivating a sort of ease that I can then share with, with other people. That was really just a good five years when I was at a school, just every day being in that mode. And at the time I, I didn't know it, but then for my own just personal necessity, I was like, I, I got to do something about this anxiety that's boiling up. And I found my way to meditation, largely through the art space. And I noticed that then that my meditation practice really transformed how I was connecting with my students. And when I had the language to describe what was happening inside and forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness, gratitude, and was grounding these with daily practice, my students' lives transformed. Yeah. So now even, you know, any experience I do, I mean, I, I've been working to dissolve the separation between neurotypical and neurological, neurologically divergent individuals and finding a place where I can interface with both in the same way, having that same level of compassion and forgiveness with anyone who wanders past my path. And we need more of that, right? This world needs more empathy. And I love that not only has that been a core principle of yours even before you started these practices, but these practices have aided you in being able to apply and alchemize those experiences and emotions into a deeper compassion and a deeper way to show up for your students, watching not only your own life transform, but theirs as well. So that is deeply beautiful and such a wonderful way to, to look at this space and the practices. I am curious, you mentioned anxiety and how that was truly the crux of why you started to seek meditation and these alternative practices as a means to supporting yourself through anxiety, stress, and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience, what anxiety you were facing and how meditation and breathwork started to support you in minimizing that experience? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, at, at the time, I, I really didn't have the language to describe what was happening to me. It was just my baseline experience had been one of anxiety. And I guess you could call it depression for so long that I was like, oh, this is just kind of how it is. And, uh, but, you know, you kind of hear whispers through the void of certain things, certain people whose words resonate particularly deeply mentioning Meditation, compassion, <laughs> forgiveness, and then the whispers kind of gain an inertia and a momentum of their own. And, you know, I found myself experimenting. For me, the real, the first breakthrough moment I had was through the art space. I was working very closely with a Lebanese painter and art is a great way to meet fascinating people. And I just was enamored with just the diversity of all the people I was meeting through working in that space. And uh, I was at a dinner party and there was someone there who was a meditation teacher. And I was like, well, if this isn't a reason to give it a shot, I, I don't know what is. So I signed up for one of his meditation classes. It was Vedic meditation. I'm very grateful to the practice. I still practice today. It was a week long experience and you kind of you show up to the class, you go home, you practice, you show up, you go home to practice. And like four days in, I like hit it. I hit the wordless zone in meditation. And afterwards, I just felt like a million bucks. 
I mean, I didn't even, I didn't want to sleep. I was like, is this what it's like to just not have this gnawing anxiety all the time? And that really just gave me a tether to the potential of the experience. I mean, you notice it more the first time, because really what you're noticing is the delta or the change in baseline consciousness. So when I first experienced that radical change, I was like, oh, we're going to keep going with this. So I went quite deep into that. And then it just one thing led to another. You know, once we have this experience with the self and of that liberation and freedom from the intrusion of anxiety, there's something charming. There's like a little light that's lit. There's a charm, which then I've kind of followed and has led me in various directions. I mean, you know, charmed in certain directions that, that burned out and other directions that became sustainable practices. And now I can't imagine, you know, going back a life without these sort of practices to keep myself in a certain sort of harmonic band is, yeah, it's in the past. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing. I think it's beautiful to hear your reflection on the change, the shift that you felt internally and what experience helped you with that shift. I'm curious about Vedic meditation. I've personally never heard of it. So, and also just for the purpose of this conversation, can you tell us what is meditation and what is Vedic meditation and how would one start to meditate? Hmm. So Vedic meditation is, is kind of like a branch of transcendental meditation. It has a, a living teacher, which I like. Transcendental meditation teaches from largely from recordings of Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, while Vedic meditation, Tom Knowles, who is a student of the Maharishi, teaches. And I just find his insight particularly resonant. Vedic meditation is meditation that uses a bija mantra, which is basically a sound, a meaningless sound, that when repeated inside of one's own mind in a certain sort of effortless unattached way allows the consciousness to drop deeper and deeper more space between the thoughts until the space between the thoughts becomes so large that it's experienced as space and it it's a great way to downregulate the nervous system access insight just get out of the identity matrix and self-conception with a small s and into that bigger capital s consciousness and awareness and yeah, you know, I mean, everyone has a different foot in the door. This was just my foot in the door, my first foot in the door. And then there were many other foot in the doors, which kind of brought me to where I am today. And, and you know, the first one's always kind of special. It's where the story starts often. But, uh, you know, really, I've discovered over time that I can reflect in myself how I was blocked from getting to meditation earlier, which was that I conceived of it as some kind of really fancy thing where I had to be on a mountaintop in a robe with incense and a guru and a cave. And I needed this super complex intellectual technique and ancient tradition. And I mean, these things are great. If this is your path, walk it. Fantastic. But also at the same time, meditation is, is simply accessing silence and stillness, an internal sense of silence and stillness. And one can access that through focusing on anything. So Vedic meditation uses a bija mantra. You could also transcend off of strawberry, 
instead of a bija mantra or you know anything any word that you repeat to yourself right we can kind of kind of like self-hypnotize but hypnotize has a lot of weird connotations it's quiet the self by continually returning to one drishti or point of focus so you know i've i've meditated you can meditate with asana which physical postures you can meditate like meta meditation you meditate by returning to loving kindness or compassion walking meditation you return to the activity of walking really any you can also think of meditation as just it's the art of doing one thing at a time and doing one thing at a time is really what we're after right it's doing being able to do one thing at a time is love it's performance it's connection the things that most of us are looking to invite into our life are really just derivative of being able to do one thing at a time with fluency. I love that you said that it doesn't require any fancy things. I think sometimes we have this picture of to be spiritual or to be mindful, you need to like renounce and detach from all of your worldly possessions and like become a monk or something like that. But I've said it many times before, I think the society in which we live is honestly the best testing ground to apply the practices of meditation, of mindfulness, because you can walk through this world completely dissociated and then maybe going a little crazy, or you can walk through it with that knowing of the stillness that your practices bring you. And I heard this amazing quote, which I love to share is, meditation is not the absence of thought. Rather, it's allowing your mind to run free without running after it. So when you sit and you start your meditation practice, I think a lot of people might shy away from it. Similarly, not only because they think it's some fancy thing, but because they're like, I'm going to do it wrong. There really is no wrong way. You sit and find stillness. And if your mind gets distracted, which it's not an if, it's a when it gets distracted, because that's what our minds do, you bring it back to the mantra or to stillness or whatever you've chosen to focus your attention on. And that in and of itself is the act of meditation. It's the practice of pulling your attention back when the mind wants to run away. And my current mantra right now is I love what is. So I have different ways of personally accessing or getting myself to a meditative state. Sometimes I'll start it with some breath work. Sometimes I'll have a mantra. It depends on how fast my mind is running because it's not every day that I'm going to be able to sit and do seven minutes of breath work and 10 minutes of meditation. Like it's very different every single day. Sometimes I'll get there faster. Sometimes I might not get there the whole time. And it's more the act of showing up and cultivating that relationship with yourself going, do I need a mantra today? Do I need a loving kindness meditation? Do I need some breath work? Sitting with whatever you're experiencing and just choosing to show up to your meditation practice, whatever that looks like. And it can be outside on a walk. It can look like something different every day and finding the ability to be okay with that. That's personally why my mantra right now is I love what is because to me that symbolizes that I don't have to create or make a routine or absolutely stick with any one way of being. I can love what is in the moment, however that may be showing up for me. While we are on the subject of kind of accessing the meditative state, how has breathwork been supportive to one accessing a deeper side of yourself, the meditative state? I'd just love to start delving into that world as well in a layer to the meditative conversation. Mm. Yeah, thank you. 
Yeah, I would also like to reflect a little bit based on what you said about, I really think moving beyond right and wrong with personal practices is particularly if you're looking to get into this work or this self-practice, letting go of right and wrong is a really important step. And breath work really helped me do that because it's just, it's incredibly elegantly simple or it's a simple, straightforward. It's really straightforward. For me, with Vedic meditation and yoga and dance and a lot of these other practices, I was able to create this experience of presence within myself with a fair degree of reliability, but I wasn't able to share it. I wasn't able to, you know, immediately transmit it to someone if I'd had five minutes of their time. And with breath work, it was like, oh, this is something I can share with anyone. It's, it's straightforward. There's no way to, there's really no way to do it wrong. There never is with any meditative practice, but with breath work, it's particularly clear because you're breathing all the time. Everyone knows how to breathe. And all you do is you just attempt to breathe on the rhythm, right? And it's a great sort of playground with which to practice all of these mindful techniques, which can often seem kind of intellectual and far flung, and we don't really understand them. But with the breath, we can integrate them in a very direct way. Like also speaking to what you said about, you know, this making a mistake, or kind of falling off the mantra, that this is actually part of the practice. And a lot of people don't understand this, like often they come to meditation, they sit down, and they become uniquely aware of how anxious they are. And they're like, I'm never doing this again. <laughs> when really, this is the first step, right? Where, you know, if you're starting breath work, you breathe a little bit, and then you kind of wander off into anxiety land. And then we become aware that you're in anxiety land instead of on breath. And the ego is like, well, now you should give up because you did it wrong. And instead, we want to tell ourselves, oh, this is actually this is the process. Becoming aware that you're off the mantra, whatever that mantra is, whether it's breath or asana or walking or making spaghetti, coming back to that one thing at a time. And it's this coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back, which is more meditation than any sort of being perfectly on. It's this returning home to the intention or the drishti, the point of focus. This is how we build the appropriate pathways, whether behavioral, neurological, psycho-spiritual, whatever layer or frame one wants to put on it. We're trying to deepen a certain groove that allows us to do what we intend to do without interference and intrusion from the mind, the ego. Mm. One thing that you said that touched me very deeply is that breathwork offered you an opportunity to share the feeling that you accessed within meditation. Can you tell us a little bit about your experience with sharing breathwork, becoming a breathwork facilitator? I know that my experience was very profound. I love how you gave an introduction to those new to breathwork. Also breathwork, I found, especially in that space, is very much what you make of it. But I also just want to hear from the facilitator side, both learning the breathwork techniques for yourself and then learning how to share that. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience? So for me, I was a regular at Womb Yoga Studio before it closed and really resonated with the space. And when I got more into my body, I started being curious about Wim Hof 
and I was taking cold showers and doing his breathwork pattern. But then one of my now teachers in a larger domain, David Shemesh, taught a breathwork class, holotropic style breathwork class there. And I went once and I was like, this is it. This is my church. I'm coming here every week and I'm going to sit down and I'm going to breathe. At the time, I described it as I had contact with a certain aspect of myself that I both couldn't lie to and didn't judge me. It was just a way of checking in to make sure I hadn't drifted too far. This happens to everyone, right? Where you, something happens, you blink, and then it's a year. <laughs> and you've been wandering down a rabbit hole, you know? And then this is just like, well, if I do this every week, I can only drift for a week. So I'm going to stick with it and just show up. I mean, it was, it was challenging for me. I mean, it was a very physical experience at first, working through the layers of resistance that breath can unearth. And yeah, and then I did really did that up to the pandemic, basically. And when the pandemic hit, I started, you know, I took the prompt from the universe to pay more attention to having this practice be self-directed, inside out, being like, you know what, Adrian, if you believe this stuff as much as you do and talk about it as much as you do, you have to be able to create this in your own container. Yeah, and then once I started creating it in my own container, I developed a certain confidence and opportunities came in for me to share. I got into breath. I mean, when I started breathwork coaching, like it wasn't a thing. I was like, can I even call it this? <laughs> but it was really, I had a friend who was having like a spiritual SOS moment. And I answered the call. I went over and I did breath work with her for a while and it helped. And then like a few months later, she had a friend who was in a tough spot and was like, can you just do what you did with me, with my friend? And I started doing that and I liked it. And now I do it. <laughs> so now I, I share, you know, at first it was much more just breath based. The more I've done the work, the more I've realized there are many ways to get your foot in the door. And I support people in finding whatever practices are right for them. But if they don't already have a place to start, we usually start with breath just because it's reliable. It's straightforward. There's no complex intellectual technique. It's immediate. Like if something's up with you and you breathe for five minutes, you immediately will feel a tangible textural state change, right? And then once that becomes a personal practice, something one gives oneself every morning, then life seems to transform. You feel good after breath work. And then if you do breath work every morning, you feel good for your whole life. It's just a series of days after mornings. Yeah. So, you know, breath work. And then after, soon after coaching, once the pandemic started to wind down, then I found opportunities to share in a group context. In one of our first, I think this was during the phone call that we had a few months back, you had asked me about whether or not my practice is guided versus not guided. And this is actually something that my friends ask me a lot about too, but you were the first person to have asked me. And I was like, oh, guided, like I have an app, people speak in my ear, you know, I listen to them and I get to these states. And you had encouraged me to start to practice unguided, to sit with myself and access these, these levels without someone's guidance, because you could say it a lot better than I can, but I believe you had mentioned that when you are directed, 
you are kind of limited to the arc by which they will direct you. If you want to dive in deeper, but they're pulling you out, you're more likely to be pulled out because you're listening to their guide to meditation. And so that, I love that that was a journey that you went on as well through COVID. And it is kind of what helped you alchemize your practice, not only into a personal one, but into one in which you share. And it's something that I have taken to heart as well. So can you tell us a little bit about the difference between guided versus not guided practices? You know, we have the phone apps, which one could say that you're literally kind of like you're relying on the thing that you're trying to escape to also help actualize you. But can you talk about the difference between guided, non-guided, in-person, virtual, all the spaces, how that's different? Yeah, well, I think the core element which is being touched on here is empowerment. What is empowerment? I mean, when I first heard the word, just like forgiveness, when I first heard it, I was like, what's that? That's a little too cheesy. But what now I've come to understand empowerment as is this is a self-recognizing that it's a self-directed phenomenon. It's always a self-directed phenomenon. No one else is ever healing you. No one else is ever transforming you. No one else is ever fixing you. No one else should ever have authority over your internal state. No one else should be making demands of you. Nothing needs to happen. You don't need to meditate. You don't need to do anything. (laughs) You can do whatever you want, right? It's this recognizing that once we really drop into the understanding that this is an inside-out process, it requires my active participation for it to work. I can't just passively listen to guided meditations and expect anything beyond surface-level change. It requires an active participation. Now, Once we understand that, then we can start to contextualize guidance in a different way. Guidance is simply support. It's supporting your internal process. What can happen is that if we're, for our personal practices, are always listening to someone else or being supported by someone else, we can unconsciously think that we need support. When we think that we need this external prompt, this external thing, it's disempowering. We give our power away to that, to the app, to the teacher, to the guru, to the community, right? We're disempowering ourselves instead of recognizing that we actually do have the ability to generate this on our own. I make this suggestion that I made to you as kind of an experiment. So see what happens. See what happens if you trust that through being guided and supported, you have developed enough fluency to give it a try on your own. At the end of the day, a self-directed practice is definitionally going to be a better fit. Whenever anyone else teaches anything, they're teaching what worked for them and everyone's unique. So it's definitionally impossible for an external practice to be as impactful as a self-directed one. Thank you for touching on that. I love that breathwork help you move through your own personal layers of resistance. And yes, that was in a guided space, but however, it started to create what you mentioned was honesty with yourself, both honesty and non-judgment. And I think that's so beautiful. And not everyone realizes that they have layers of resistance, or maybe they know they have them, but they don't know what they are. Can you speak to a little bit of that discovery process for you? What it was like to identify your layers of resistance, what it was like to start to move through them and how these modalities supported you in that. Mm. Yeah, resistance is, resistance and challenge 
are the two words I use to describe that thing I don't want. Whatever that is, the, the bad stuff. I try not to use the word bad, but in this conversation, we'll use it. When I can contextualize what's happening as a challenge, then I know that it's just a step on the path to a new place. And resistance is when one resists the challenge, when one resists the call, right? If you think of hero's journey stories, there's always the moment where the hero is like, yeah, this is too hard. <laughs> and then some old, you know, wise woman or wise man comes and gets him back on the path or something. You know, this is the kind of meta narrative. Resistance is really all that there is on some level. All there is to do is release resistance. I used to think that transformation was an additive, an additive phenomena. I go to school, I learn, I get degrees, I get credentialing, I get practice, I get experience, and then I am an authority figure on a thing. I have transformed. In reality, we emerge authentically once resistance is stripped away. It's effortless. It's an overflowing. It's coming from a place of trust where I trust that if my thinking mind and my conditioning and my resistance is released, what will happen will be me. And if I happen, this is a good thing. There's nothing else to do besides being myself. I am enough fundamentally. And this is you know, something I had, had said to me, I didn't really believe it, but over time you get enough practice and reality will reflect this back to you. The more we can let go of a need to plan, hyper plan, billions of to-do lists. Uh, you know, I used to, when I would go to a party, I used to script every conversation I would have. Yeah, I would script everything. I was super prepared. And in my mind, I was like, I'm doing it right. I'm doing a good job. I always have intelligent things to say. I always have, you know, da, 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 da. but what was happening is I was basically just perpetuating my resistance to other people as a way to inflate my ego. <laughs> I mean, luckily I can laugh about it now. The psycho-spiritual place of being there is, I mean, at best energetically taxing, at worst anxiety-ridden. So breathwork has a way of making one physically aware of how disharmonic this engaging with resistance is. It, it simply doesn't work. If you're doing a breathwork journey, which is like the one that I facilitate now and the ones that I sat in, if you're staying on beat with the breath and you're trying to blame yourself and to-do list your problems, your body will be incredibly uncomfortable. And then as soon as you let some of that go, one notices one's body feels way better. What's going on here? <laughs> What's going on here? And I noticed that, you know, if I was in my breath and I was thinking about, I needed to do my breath work right. I got to be breathing and my breathing has to sound good. <clears throat> like a nice sonorous breath. And then I'd feel all this stuff, this discomfort, sometimes even pain in the body. And then I would notice myself engaging with, this sort of additive resistance-based thinking. And then at some point it would get so bad, I would just like make a sound that didn't sound good, that was wrong. <laughs> and then I would feel better, right? And it was just the opportunity to practice this and like iterate and have this really high fidelity relationship with my capital S self. It, get these reps in, 
get the practice in and go through this cycle enough where I started to understand emotionally how ridiculous it is to engage with resistance and pretend that that's the way that reality works. So much wisdom there. So, so much. I think personally reflecting my own practices in a place where I am very cognizant of the resistance that I create and I'm better at clearing it. I'm not at the place where I can naturally, well, I don't even want to say that I'm not at that place because in saying that I'm creating yeah. the resistance to, I'm literally creating it. And so I really <laughs> struggle with this or even that I struggle. That's creating yeah. resistance. I'm actually growing and progressing every single day. Yeah. So you can see where I am really good at pattern interrupting. I'm really good at reframing. I'd like to continue on in that same lens and hopefully get to a place where there is less to pattern interrupt. I create less resistance. But hearing you speak to breathwork and getting those reps in as a means to where it seems like, from what I heard, that you don't create the resistance for you to have to move through. I don't think there's ever a reality where we will never have resistance. You mentioned resistance is all there is, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about that shift of how we might think about creating resistance, how to work on not creating resistance, any more details around that. And even the analogy that you offered a little while ago was you'll start to face the same problems on your spiritual journey, but you'll access or you'll solve them from different layers of your being. So if we could touch a little bit more in depth on how you come to a place where you don't necessarily create as much resistance, or maybe you treat it with a different mindset. I'd love to just hear your thoughts on all those things. Yeah. I mean, I'm certainly still on the path. I certainly still have my resistance. I can just in retrospect, in reflection, see that in some domains of my life, the default pattern is fluency and flow rather than resistance. Yet there is always more. There's always another layer that can be pulled back. And when I started doing this work, when my teachers would tell me, there's always another layer. There's always something else to pull back. You never really get there. I was like, God, like, I just want to get there. And the image that came to mind is the, the Sisyphus, which is the Greek myth of the guy who's basically been condemned to push a boulder up a hill continually. He never gets to the top of the hill. He's always just pushing this boulder. And I think a pitfall of the healing transformation, self-care, self-work space, meditation space is only looking at this is like work and a task and like a grind where you just got to push the boulder up the hill. We're going to be pushing the boulder up the hill our whole life. This is the way it is. You got to accept it. You got to not be attached to the boulder, you know, it's then immediately the tone of this is kind of defeatist. When in reality, the picture that this is painting, what I would invite you all to imagine instead of the Sisyphusian task of working through resistance, is that whenever a layer of resistance is removed, our baseline consciousness expands to be able to hold more of the experience of joy. What are we after? Um, joy. Joy is great. <laughs> Joy is engaged bliss, right? Joy is bliss that is grounded in a body, in a place with other people doing things. 
not saying that all of life should be joy, but aesthetically, this is a nice proposition. Right? What gets in the way of joy? What gets in the way of joy is resistance, overthinking, self-doubt, blame, shame, fear, guilt. And that when we find a ways of not engaging with blame, shame, fear, guilt, resistance, joy is simply what happens. It's our natural state is joyfulness. So that whenever I encounter resistance, I know that when I metabolize, integrate, process, release, let go, this layer of resistance, my life will be more joyful. And my life can always become more joyful. What a gift. It is a gift. This reminds me back to the start of our conversation where you had mentioned that engaging in these practices like meditation, like breath work, enabled you to show up in a different capacity for your students. Can you share beyond just the obvious of facilitating a breathwork experience and helping people access that state of consciousness within themselves? How have those practices helped you engage with the world around you in a different way? And how did they help you engage with your students in a different way? Hmm. Well, I'll start with my students because that was kind of the beginning of the path chronologically. And I think does point to the phenomena quite well. If any of your listeners aren't familiar with children with autism or neurologically divergent individuals, every person is unique. So in speaking about this, I will be making some generalizations, but in generally enhanced sensitivity that many of the students I was working with were nonverbal. And from my experience in meditation, I know that when I am in a nonverbal state, I'm incredibly plugged into my sensations and my surroundings and into the reality of co-creation, that when language is not interfering with this, I'm very present with the space. And that was how, you know, a lot of my students were, you know, if there's a light in the classroom, those fluorescent lights, it's like flashing at the wrong frequency, or there's a buzz or a hiss from somewhere, or something is out of place in the room or something about someone's tone of voice is off, they would be off because they're in direct connection with all of this. And at the time, the modality I was working, was being paid to and trained to work with these children with was applied behavior analysis, which is basically, which does work. It's kind of a blunt instrument, but it is, it can be a real gift to these students if applied correctly. But the understanding of it is based in, we want to be able to teach the children to act in a certain way and learn in a certain way independent of everything in their environment. And, you know, another way of saying that is whoever their teacher is, we want them to be able to perform at the same level. And I discovered this just ignores a certain reality, which is that if I meditated in the morning, all of my students would be calmer and more able to learn. If I was on my practices, physical practice, compassion, forgiveness, meditation, community connection, family engagement, that whole spectrum of things. And my nervous system was calmer. They would pick up on that and they would be able to learn and just exist in a, in a more relevant way. It's hard to point to exactly where I'm going with this, <laughs> but I hope that just the example of that can gesture towards this being a fundamental phenomenon, which is always at play we may just not be aware where 
with children with autism, I was able to discover that my state affected the state of everyone around me. But it's always at play. Everyone's this way. The only question is, can you notice and are they aware of it and are you aware of it? After that, how did this experience of presence I was able to cultivate in my own personal practice and through guided experience, how did that show up in my life? I mean, life got better. Life harmonized. You know, manifestation is sometimes talked about in the space as something that is like, we get it confused with the idea of prayer. Where it's like, if I ask an authority figure, an invisible authority figure for a thing, it will be provided to me. This is not how I've experienced it. How I've experienced it is that when I can experience more joy, bliss, forgiveness, compassion, gratitude, kindness, when I experience more of that, that's also, if I give that off, that's what I receive. So what I say is to some of my students and clients is, if you don't practice gratitude, gratitude won't practice on you. That's another thing that I started doing after we met is every morning I write down a gratitude list with my either breakfast or coffee every morning. So that's another thing I took away. But so many things are coming up. You are the co-creator of your own reality. As soon as you use manifestation to ask a higher power for something or you use an app to guide you through something without knowing that you have that power within yourself, you take away your own power to do something about it if your life is not good because you're turning externally to you. Turning internally and knowing that you are the creator of your own reality, knowing that you can guide yourself to and through the layers of resistance, you take that power back and you embody your own ability to live the reality that you want. It does take work. I don't think it's easy, but I think that you do have that at your disposal in the minute that you turn or say that another tool or thing or person or being is responsible for creating that in your life, you give up your own agency in saying something in the matter or doing something about it. And another thing that came up through that discussion is the fact that we are all picking things up from one another. It's like, we're all picking up each other's energy, whether or not you're more sensitive to it or not. You kind of wonder like how much we're picking up from everybody on a daily basis. During your breathwork session in particular, I know I was saying it before we started speaking, but I felt like I was clearing through not only my own energy blocks, but I was clearing through other people's. Um, I went through a pretty confrontational experience <laughs> last year, which I've continued to heal through and continued to work through in myself, both in the self-worth, abandonment issues that kind of came up, came to head as a result of that. But I am so grateful because looking back, all those things coming to light in the way that they did really put them in front of my face in the way that I was like, I'm going to do something about this. And I'm no longer going to live or subscribe to this reality that I was looping on for years. Mm. In that experience, I felt connected not only to my own experience of pain and of other sensations related to what had happened, but I felt like I was tapped into another person's. And when I was clearing that pain, you know, it can sometimes feel like when you are navigating the world around you and you're interacting with a lot of people, it can feel a little bit unfair. Like, why am I picking up other people's energy? 
why do I have to notice that I'm picking up other people's energy, right? Because when you become aware of this universe, maybe before you were doing it, but you didn't notice you were doing it. And now you have that awareness. I think it's very easy to say, oh, I'm going to put up my energetic boundaries or I'll practice my way to clear it. But there still might be a little bit of resistance in that you're like, oh, I don't want to pick up your bad juju Mm -hmm. or whatever. What I've recently been playing with or shifting with or thinking through is the fact that even if that pain, that anger, that stress is not yours, in this moment, the experience of it is. If you believe in collective consciousness, if you believe in collective energy, if you're experiencing that pain, that anger, that joy, and you have an opportunity to move through it, won't you be better off by not holding on to it? And won't the collective be better off? Maybe you're helping that person. I know this starts to bridge into personal belief systems about energy and collective conscious and things like that. But I really reframed it to even if the pain is not mine, in this moment, the experience of it is. And your breathwork session really helped support me in clearing some things through and becoming more aware of how breathwork can help me and how it illuminates the ways in which I am tapped into and connected to others through what is or source Mm. or energy. Mm. Yeah, thank you for sharing. I'm happy my experience resonated. When we do communal meditations, whether it's with breath or mantra meditation or dance or something, we come into a felt understanding that we are co-creating the experience. And I can say this thing intellectually, like we know that the other people in the room affect what's happening. To feel that in your body as a sensation and a feeling, first, it can be surprising and overwhelming and challenging. (laughs) Over time, it becomes joyful. I think for a lot of people and myself, where we relish the opportunity to rip off a new layer of resistance. You know, is it someone else's? Is it my own? Is it ours? I mean, intellectually, I can say for sure it's ours. The way to approach that, I found that is most relevant is to recognize that everything that's happening is happening within you. You know, if you see a glowing deer in your meditation, you weren't aided by the spirit of the deer. This is just how a part of your consciousness manifested to communicate something to you within you. And you have the power to do that again. You don't have to be in the sacred deer forest to experience that, right? You know, you see angels. Great. The angels aren't healing you. You're healing yourself. And it looks like angels. <laughs> it's fine. Whatever it is, it's, it's also not me. If I'm facilitating the experience, I'm not healing you. I'm not making whatever's happened happen. I'm not causing your transformation. I'm holding the space for you to have an experience with yourself of that transformation that then is sustainable, durable, self-directed. You can replicate it. I don't don't want that power. (laughs) It's not for me. It doesn't work. It burns out. Anyone who approaches power that way will burn out. I'm looking to be able to more fluently hold space and support people in finding this within themselves. Having the sort of experience that you had where you were able to dissolve the boundary between the self and the other a little bit, move away from atomization towards a collective understanding, process trauma, release trauma, let it go, experience space and spaciousness and yourself coming into it. This is it. (laughs) This is the ticket. 
Yeah, I mean, I hope I spoke to what you said there about the self and the other. I'd like to not get too into the weeds to it because there's a lot to unpack. And fundamentally, you don't need to be able to unpack everything. Just the experience of the thing is enough and learning to trust that the experience of it is enough and that I don't need to intellectualize it and be able to tell it as a story for it to be meaningful. It's just feeling it. That is so powerful. That's another thing that's come up in a lot of conversations recently is myself and a lot of the people that are in my circle that are on a similar journey. We have a tendency to always ask why. Why do I feel this way? Why is this happening? Why did this go wrong? Why is my health this way? Why am I feeling this way? Instead of just sitting with the sadness, it's like, oh, why? Mm. And so I love what you said about, you know, sometimes you could just feel it. Do you have any thoughts on why we tend to ask those questions? Like, why do we ask oh, yeah. the why? What is that helping with? And how can we start to move away from that? Yeah, yeah. So, well, we've been trained and conditioned to ask intellectual why questions by the way that all of us went to school and most likely interface with our family. Particularly high achievers can have this challenge because that sort of analytical thinking may serve you very well in interfacing with society in the way that it's currently iterating. You know, being able to solve a quadratic equation requires the ability to ask some why questions and to ask them to the teacher and express them and dig into things. You know, to become successful in many careers, you've got to have that curiosity and that drive to know and to share and to make manifest. When it comes to working with the self, there are two things. One, you can either just choose to stop asking why as a way to stay in the present moment as a shortcut or as an experiment rather than shortcut, forget shortcut, as an experiment, as a way of practicing curiosity and play. See if you can, to your listeners, run this for yourself. Don't ask why, simply ask, what is the relevant thing to do? Based on this, what is the relevant thing to do? The ego can fixate on what's technically true rather than what is relevant. And why often gets us into the maze of technical truths that are totally irrelevant. Okay, it was technically true. Susie was mean to me in third grade. I didn't get enough love from, you know, my dog and my dad. And, you know, I scraped my knee and now my knee's off. So that's when my hips are off. And that's why I experienced back pain, which is why I was angry right now. And this is why. And this is, I think, where some modern psychotherapy can kind of, there are limitations on some forms of psychotherapy, not all, where you're just really fluent at describing your own misery. You become really able to identify what caused all of your quote unquote problems, but not what to do with it. And so, you know, you can find all these things that are technically true, but they're irrelevant often to you doing anything about them. What's the relevant thing to do? I can tell you 99 times out of 100, it's drink water, eat healthy food, get some sleep, meditate, move your body, engage with community. It's not rocket science, but these aren't the answers that we often want to hear. <laughs> it's like all self-help books are saying the same thing. 
who's just saying it differently. Drink water, meditate, move your body, reflect, set intention. It's not rocket science. Now, how it's said is really important. If someone can say something in a way that resonates with you, that causes you to bring some one of these phenomena into your personal practice, that's an incredibly valued self-help book. I'm not diminishing it. I'm just pointing to there's a commonality. The more relevant question to ask is what's relevant, not what is technically true and why, 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 why? What's, what, what do I do about it now? What you said about we can fully explain and divulge and write pages and pages of notes about what caused our misery, but we don't know how to fix it or not fix. We don't know how to move through it and access a more joyful reality. What you just spoke to really helps me hone in on, I don't need to explain everything. Sometimes I feel like the explanation helps me with a pattern interrupt, or I recognize that, yes, I did get to the root of it. Like a question meditation typically helps me get to the root and make sure that I'm not just scratching the surface of, there's this surface level thing that's bothering me and I'm going to move through it. But if I haven't tapped into whatever deeper layer of resistance is there, I'm not actually going to clear that. So sometimes a question meditation will help me access that deeper layer of, is this actually bothering me? Is there something below that? But I don't necessarily have to explain every feeling or sensation that I'm sitting with to heal it or to work through it rather. So that was interesting. And I think a great reminder for me to stop asking why. And hopefully for my listeners as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not making a blanket statement about saying never ask why. In general, the more relevant way to ask why isn't when you're sitting on the couch ruminating about what Netflix show to watch next. And you've been scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. There are no good shows. And you just start thinking in this kind of technical, true wandering path. We can tend to just loot and just burn time, a stewing and anxiety. If you really want to know why, then address the why in a container, which is designed to do that. Self-reflection practice, journal at the end of the night, a journal page at the end of the night, reread your journal, skim through at the end of every month. You'll, you'll see why it will come out. Right. Or you can do, I really love Byron Katie worksheets. She has a great book, Loving What Is, in addition to many others. She has little worksheets that you can do, which help release judgment on a thing. I used to do those very regularly for about six months. You know, there are many books and modalities and strategies, meditations, experiences you can go through to find the why. But what usually happens is after you do it a few times, you realize that it's not, it's, it's not the necessity that we once thought it was. What's more relevant is allowing ourselves to feel the feeling so they can move out. When the feeling comes up, can we experience it either without a label or with a relevant label and let it go? Things have to come up to come out. So often when people experience an uncomfortable sensation, maybe it's sadness or fear or self-doubt, immediately want you want to go into avoidance, or distraction, or fighting against it, or blaming what's happening in the environment. 
Like, oh, I feel doubt. It must be because of this bad meditation I'm on. <laughs> when us feeling the doubt is it attempting to move out. What does the mind want? The mind is like, well, if I just intellectualize the doubt into a little corner, I'll know exactly why and all the things that are technically true about this doubt, then it'll go away. And when I say it like this, it's ridiculous, but I mean, I still engage with this stuff unconsciously. I still catch myself doing this. And it's, you know, again, moving more into, okay, if, if I'm feeling this thing, which is uncomfortable, it's coming up so that it can come out. The way I can allow that to happen is to not label it as bad, first thing. Experience it, let it flow through. If I must label it, try to find a label which points towards transformation. This is where the word challenge and resistance come in. I'm experiencing something challenging. It allows me to validate and describe my experience without projecting more like guilt or doubt or blame or fear onto what I'm experiencing. Like experiencing sadness, melancholy, grief. These are all healthy human emotions that are a part of life. Guilt, shame, mm, they're not relevant. They're just not relevant patterns. And how would you say that you move through or feel these things? We often hear feel it to heal it or move through it, let it pass. How physically do you sit with it in meditation? Do you sit with something in breath work or in a worksheet? Knowing that there is no right answer, what have you found personally impactful in actually sitting with, giving space to those emotions and the things that are coming up and move them through? I mean, I like breath work because it's elegantly straightforward. Breath work allows us to interface with resistance as a physical sensation rather than slippery thoughts. All you have to do is breathe and it happens and stay on the breath. So breathe, 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 off into mind wandering land that's irrelevant. Okay, back to the breath, back to the breath, back to the breath. And I wander, 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 back to the breath, back to the breath. Attempting to intellectualize my feeling, back to the breath, back to the breath. What happens is then we end up experiencing the feeling as a sensation. It's undeniable. It's textural. It's present. It's tangible. It's like clay. We now have the ability to handle it, where sometimes, I'm not saying it can't be done in the mind, but often when it's attempted to be done in the mind, it's like you're trying to make a sculpture out of fog. It's too slippery and translucent. When we can ground it in the body and have a direct, straightforward, non-intellectual approach, we just feel our feelings as sensation, as a tingliness in the shoulder, tightness in the neck you know, vibrating of the thighs, whatever it is, whatever the sensation is that's arising, we are simply aware of the sensation. And then at some point, the sensation goes away. It moves out. Our body knows how to get rid of stuff when we're not interrupting it with the mind. An example I give. One would think that, you know, gazelles would just be the most anxiety-ridden species on earth. I mean, imagine every day, a lion, pack of lions trying to kill you. Every day. And you just, you know, and what do the gazelles do? They're super chill. They're just eating grass, jumping around. They don't give a fuck, right? Lion comes, attacks, kills one of them. They're just going, kind of, lion's hungry now, so I'll just keep eating grass, right? Gazelles don't have PTSD. What do they do? Sometimes you'll see a gazelle sort of like tremor or jump, 
like after it avoids being attacked by the lion. The gazelle is listening to its body, feeling its sensations and allowing the body's intelligence to move out this stress, this plaque that builds up, right? What happens with us is that maybe as a child, we knew how to do this, but at some point we were told this is not the appropriate place to stomp or to shout or to wiggle or to scream or whatever it is that we were doing. Over time, we're in all of these contexts where it's quote unquote, not appropriate for us to self-regulate. And then at some point we forget that we ever had that capacity. And now when we do breath, it's a way of communicating to the body very directly. Now is the time to do the gazelle tremor. Do what you need to do, body. Like I've cleared the mind out of the room. Here are the necessary hormones, neurotransmitters, just oxygen in order to do what you need to do. Go for it. I trust you. I know that it may be challenging. I know there may be some surprising sensations. I know that feeling my feelings may be uncomfortable, but also I know that on the other side of that will be an evolution, a development. It's just like if you go to a gym and you're doing bicep curls, your bicep burns, but you're not like, this is a problem. My bicep is burning. Uh-oh, this is a bad exercise for me to do. No, you're just like, this is just part of what happens in order for my biceps to get stronger as I do curls. Breath work, it's like bicep curls for presence and processing resistance. You do it, you feel sensation, you know that on the other side, you will be more fluent, more present. Mm, that analogy was perfect. Yeah, we're not stopping working out. You almost relish in it because you're like, yes, yeah. I'm going to be jacked. <laughs> so it's like relish in your breath work, relish in the experience. I can't even describe it, truly. It is a whole other level. I'd highly recommend anyone in New York City to find Adrian and go on that journey, even if just for a session, if that's something that is calling. And I think that also really helped contextualize actually how it might move through your body and how our mind interferes. So the entire visual or depiction that you created there was really helpful even for me to understand too what's going on in that space. And another question I have is with personal transformation journeys and people that are starting to do the work or maybe are interested in the work. Do you have any commentary on starting that journey, whether you are just getting started or maybe you've been on it for a while and you're feeling a little stagnant? Do you have any commentary on the general personal journey and transformation? First thing is wherever you are is the right place to start. Whatever your capacity is to bring in habits that can grow to transform your life. Even if that capacity is 30 seconds, that's enough. We build personal transformation through what we do. In other words, habits, routines, rituals. What are we doing with regularity? If there is something in your life that you want to change, the empowered way to look at it is what habit or routine do I bring in to cause the consciousness state shift that I am looking for right now. You can do this with drugs, addictions, 
food, external things. The issue with these is that at some point they stop working or you have to increase the dosage to a level where it's really going to be interfering with your life, right? What is the sustainable approach is habits, routines. It's empowered, it's self-directed, the sky is the limit. Anything that we consume is just mimicking a neurotransmitter that our body has the ability to produce on its own. By tapping into practices, we can train our body to produce feelings that we want, <laughs> the sensations that we want, the states of consciousness that we find aesthetically pleasing. And this big thing that I'm talking about with all of these fancy words really just gets down to wake up in the morning, do something that fills your cup. If you're not doing anything, that's wonderful. I started waking up and looking at my phone immediately and eating a bagel and I don't know, I don't even know, just rolling through entire days without a moment of presence. Just one thing into the next, one thing into the next. What I recommend for people to start with is wake up, take five deep breaths. Just as soon as your alarm goes off and you're not going to hit snooze, just sit up and just go. Just big breaths. You can be loud. Loud is even better. Just five really full breaths. And trust that this is the first step on the path to spending two hours breathing, meditating, exercising, journaling, setting intentions. It starts with five deep breaths. What tends to happen is everyone's body likes breathing. So the body, after you do this for a couple of weeks, starts to like it. Where at first it's like work. Oh, I got to get up and I got to do my five deep breaths from that guy I heard on this podcast. Why am I doing this? And then the ego will be like, oh, well, you're crazy thinking five deep breaths matters. Like, come on, you got to get a degree. <laughs> you got to do hard work. You got to meditate for three hours every morning. One of the ways that our ego interferes with the process is by setting up unrealistic expectations. When we don't hit the unrealistic expectation, it then guilt trips us, right? Oh, I'm going to, I listen to this cool podcast. I'm going to do breath work for an hour every morning. Okay. I mean, maybe you'll do it for a week. Chances are you'll burn out on it because you don't have the ability to hold the experience, which is fine. This is part of the learning process is doing things and burning out. If you want to take a more sustainable approach, start small. Start with something you can't talk yourself out of. Very hard to talk yourself out of taking five deep breaths. What are you going to be like? I don't have time. You have time. In a couple of weeks, I'm sure you'll begin to notice that some of the time you end up taking more than five breaths. And then some of the time you end up sitting still for a little bit after you're finished breathing. You have now just done breath work and meditation. You don't need a robe. You don't need a mountaintop. You don't need a complex intellectual technique. You don't have to make some big promise or deal with yourself. It's just little sustainable changes. A metaphor I give for this is, let's say someone gives you a plant, right? You're not going to put the plant outside in the direct sunlight and then dump a bucket of water on it and expect it to turn into a tree. This is simply not how nature works. This is being like, I'm going to do a three-hour meditation today and all my problems will be solved. This is putting the little plant in direct sun and dumping a bucket of water on it. 
I mean, the plant might survive. It might be okay. Like maybe it'll be temporarily good. It's just not going to make a tree. What makes a tree is that every morning you give it a little bit of water, a little bit of sunlight, a little bit of attention, and then it grows. It doesn't take our work for it to grow. We just got to show up for it. Show up for your five deep breaths. Observe that it might become 10 without you even trying. Observe that you might be sitting still for a bit afterwards. Allow yourself to credit yourself for the success of this. It's not easy to build personal transformation practices. It's straightforward. It's not easy. Right? Our ego will attempt to sabotage the situation. It will either diminish it, diminish its importance, being like, oh, this doesn't matter, this thing you're doing. Or it will try to credit the positive shifts in your life to something outside of you. Like to me, like, I'm not special. <laughs> this is your own breath giving you this experience. I'm just passing on things that had helped me and that other people had passed on to me. Every light passed on expects continued momentum. It's not the passer, it's the light. There are no teachers, there are only teachings. That's so beautiful. And in regards to these personal transformation practices, I love what you said about finding a sustainable place to start and building little bit by little bit the habits that are votes for the person that you want to be or the mindset that you want to shift without putting any pressure. What would you say on the other end to people that have maybe been on this path for a while? Sometimes these practices come from a place of necessity of, okay, I need to meditate today. I need to do my journaling. I need to do this. It almost starts to shift towards that productivity or, and it's, it's crazy, right? Because it's good things that you developed out of a place of wanting to love yourself, but then you start doing them. The nature of doing them starts to shift. It's almost layered in by the ego. So how can we start to, if we notice that, layer it back? Like for example, oh, I'm waking up so early to meditate that I'm actually losing sleep and that it doesn't feel good. So how do we start to layer that back and return the practices back to what they originally started out meaning and being to us? Yeah. So for people who have already, well, for anyone, but particularly relevant for people who've already staked out some time during their day to engage with self-transformation, personal practices, and are feeling it to be a bit stale, a bit rigid, a bit too much like Sisyphus pushing the boulder up the hill, too much work, not enough joy. One thing to bring in is curiosity and play. These things are never going to do you wrong. So if your meditation stale, do a different meditation. Breathwork stale, do a different breathwork. There is no perfect external system for you. You may think you have found it. Maybe at one point there was a breathwork pattern or meditation where your entire life became wonderful. You met the love of your life. You got the job. You got the house. Everything's great. And then lo and behold, now it just feels stale and like you're pushing the boulder up the hill. Okay, do something else. But clearly, you have transformed. A relevant practice for you will be something that's different. This is just definitional. We have to embrace that we are transforming beings and that the relevant way to, to interface with this transformation is a place of play and curiosity. 
it keeps the freshness, it keeps the aliveness, it keeps the charm, it keeps the magnetism, and it keeps us using a tone inside of our head, which is kind and loving and supportive. Right? If we're yelling at ourselves to meditate, if we're blaming ourselves for not meditating, this is not conducive to building a sustainable meditation practice. It's conducive to you burning out on it. Which, again, isn't a bad thing. I burned out like four times. <laughs> Hard burnouts, right? But, you know, sometimes you got to make mistakes and you got to realize what doesn't work to realize what does work. Mistakes are part of the process. We have opposable thumbs and tools and farming and rocket ships because there was a DNA transcription mistake in a monkey. It was a mistake. This is how nature works. Nature works through errors that sometimes work, right? Mistakes are when we can recognize that this is, it's healthy. It's just part of being alive on earth, falling off, falling on, getting rigid, having the rigidity break. The question is, can we be focusing on transformation throughout the whole process? Can we be playful? Can we be curious? Can we label things in a way which is relevant? which then pulls into labeling and language. <laughs> if you don't want to be doing work, if you want what you're doing to be effortless and playful, one of the best ways to facilitate that happening is describing what's going on with transformational vocabulary. When we think, the words that we use to describe what's happening to ourself is communicating to our, you could call it automatic being or our base program, like what to do, how to do it. So if you say, you know, this is hard, this is work, you got to do this for your productivity, then this is how we respond. If you talk about it as something playful and joyous, if it's difficult, it's challenging. And this is contextualized within a story. We want to be using words that reference natural systems, overflowing, easeful, growing, transforming, evolving, developing, meeting, connecting, co-creating. When you think of visuals to what you're doing, can you make it like a stream with a tributary instead of a building? Right? Buildings have hard corners, they're rigid, and they break. Right? In India, there are some families who've been tending living bridges which are made of trees tended through generations that cross rivers and can survive monsoons. Life is strong. <laughs> Life is strong. We've deluded ourselves into thinking that the rigidity presented around us is the right way, is the best way, is what we need to do. I mean, I'm grateful to live in a nice house I mean, I would prefer it to have round rooms instead of these corners because they're not natural. They're not as suitable towards the flourishing of life. When we speak in a sort of way which references nature, which wherever you are, there's nature. I live in New York City. Pay attention to the squirrels. They're everywhere. They are nature. There are still trees in this place. That when you focus on them, you focus on the seasons, it becomes part of your internal world. And one's internal world starts to feel more like a garden that's growing, that you're watering, rather than 
like one of those robot dogs that the police department bought. And you always have to tinker with it, you know? It's always breaking. It doesn't work. It looks aesthetically just like, ugh. We don't want our life to be a machine. We want it to be alive. And we do that largely with the vocabulary we use. I know that's a lot. <laughs> but for your listeners who are looking to apply this, top line, if your practice is a little stale, a little rigid, play, curiosity, experimentation, let it change, let it transform. This is the way of nature, the way that you're talking to yourself about what you're doing. See if you can make it kind and non-judgmental and natural. I love that you brought that in. That was going to be my next question because throughout this conversation, you use language in such an incredibly intentional way. And I wanted to make note of that and recognize and applaud it, but also understand a little bit more about your thought process. So it sounds like you speak more to natural systems, to nature, but what words do you tend to try to stick away from or move away from in your own personal life and dialogue? The practice of how I use language has been largely informed. I have a regular practice with the I Ching, which is a, a wonderful book that has, or at one point was an oral tradition that became a book which has been translated many, many times. I work with a wonderful translation called I Ching, Oracle of the Cosmic Way. It's translated by two women who have done an exceptional job at stripping out what they call feudal language from the book. It has modeled and allowed me, and through my dialogue with the book, has allowed me to come into an understanding that any language that references hierarchy authority, demand, force will create an internal state, which is unpleasant, to put it simply. If I say, you need to do this, well, I don't need to do it. Ever it is I'm telling myself I don't need to do, I really don't. Need is an absolute word. And it assumes that there is a part of myself, which is higher up on the hierarchy than the other part of myself. Adrian, you need to do the dishes. What gives that part of me authority over the other part? I can think of no good reason, right? Can't, need, should, shouldn't, good, bad, right, wrong, anything that exists in a binary, again, is referencing hierarchy and authority. What is right and wrong? Well, it's totally socially and culturally dictated. If we look to history, we can see how these things have not been borne out by time. The people who have rigidly assigned a right or a wrong value to something have been made a fool within a hundred years. So instead, what we want to point to is another one of my favorite words, which you've probably heard a million times already, is relevance. What's relevant here? Not what's right and what's wrong, what's good and what's bad, what I need to do or what I need not to do. What's relevant for me to do? What is based in my environment, in the present moment, that moves me towards the transformation that I am seeking? Language that references this sort of relevance, again, tends to reference natural systems. It also tends to reference like community, I mean, forgiveness, compassion, loving kindness, gratitude, discernment, equanimity, judiciousness, overflowing, blooming, 
uniqueness, development, evolution, divergence, convergence, these sort of words, they point to something rather than making a judgment of it. When we point to something with the language we're using, we're communicating to our automatic consciousness what to do. And when we can communicate to our automatic consciousness what to do, it will carry us through life just effortlessly. It wants to help. <laughs> our body wants to do what's right. We just have to teach it what to do. And when we say, you need to do this, you've got to do that, you can't do this, you must do that, it's operating in a way like there's a tiger in the room all of the time. Because this is really the only time absolute language is appropriate. Absolute language is appropriate for physical safety. If I'm with a child and he's running out into the street and there's a car coming, I'm going to demand the child stop. <laughs> I'm not going to invite it to stop. <laughs> you know, stop. You need to stop, right? Like, okay, <laughs> safety. You know, and this is, I think, historically and evolutionarily, these were the contexts when this sort of language was used, was in there when there was danger, imminent physical danger, right? If there isn't imminent physical danger, this language isn't relevant, and it's communicating to our system, we're in imminent physical danger. When we're drinking coffee and doing the dishes, and we're telling our nervous system, we're going to die from a tiger attack, we feel anxiety. <laughs> Because our body is serving us fight the tiger energy when we're trying to do dishes. You don't need to do the dishes. Your kitchen would be clean and that would feel nice if you did the dishes. So say that to yourself. Give yourself a reason to do things, which is supportive of your transformation. You know, instead of saying, you know, I need to do my homework, you can say, I would like to do my homework so I have time to watch TV. That's fine. I need to write this email to my boss today, or he's going to be angry at me. If I write this email to my boss right now, he'll really appreciate it. Reframing mm. I have to, to I get to. Yeah. I get to go to the gym. I get to meditate and choosing gratitude of honestly being able to live a life in which you can choose how to spend your time. And you can engage in these practices or not. You have the agency of choice and being grateful that you get to choose and engage in the things that you do. Bringing it back to your note about gratitude and practicing gratitude actively. All of that is very beautifully said and so much to think about. This is totally a question that's sitting in my heart throughout this conversation. It might be a total rabbit hole, but. We've referenced a few times identity and how identity or holding on to one identity can cause suffering. In our practices, it's easy to say, you know, I am a mindful person. I meditate and I do breath work. And how do we stop ourselves from holding on to identities, even ones that might seem, you know, healthy or mindful or beneficial to our journey? Do you view identity as a bad thing? Do you view it as something that holds us back? Or do you view it as not bad, depending on what you identify with? Hmm. If you identify with infinity, it's cool. Other than that, it's at best, maybe a short term leg up or something kind of briefly functional. 
identity confines us. It limits us. If you label it, it is limited. But even like our name, sometimes you'll see artists, really cool artists, just totally change their name into something else. It's a great tool for letting go of your old self because we have attached so much to our name and to our identity. I'm a builder. I am a father. I am a mother. I am a son. I am a hard worker. I am lazy. I am this. I'm that. I am cool. I'm hip. I'm a meditator. I'm a dancer. I'm a friend. All of these things. Well, if you label yourself as a dancer, what happens to the singer? What happens to the player? What happens to the person who really likes to do quote unquote bad dance? All of a sudden that doesn't fit with the dancer, the good dancer. Instead, I would invite again this awareness that on some level, resistance is all that there is. All there is to do is let go. You think you're something, let it go. You thinking you're a dancer does not make you a better dancer. It makes you a worse dancer. Because now your dancing is going to be confined to your preconceived idea of what a dance should look like. You're not going to be as inspired. You're not going to be as innovative. You're not going to be as unique. If you let go of the label, you let go of any language about how this thing is supposed to look and who you're supposed to be, what naturally happens is you. And you being you is all there is to do. There's nothing else to do. Now, I know this can be hard to believe because at first, especially if you're really early on in this process, you're like, if I'm just me, I only watch Netflix. If I'm just me, I'm just lazy all the time. Well, you know, the rubber band's been stretched pretty far in one direction. It may have to take some time to bounce back. Be patient with yourself. It happens. You are enough. You'll get there. Give yourself some time, some practice connecting with yourself. You will happen and it will be wonderful, right? I love dance. In my personal transformation process, before I found meditation, dance was how I stayed sane. And think of, you know, you're out dancing and you're on a dance floor and there's someone there who's doing like the pre-prescribed TikTok dance to a song. And then there's someone else who's just dancing to the song, right? Which one do you want to be? Do you want to be the person who's just in it, doing it? Or the person who's doing something that's been prescribed, something external. None of us are special. All of us are unique. As soon as you make yourself special, in other words, as soon as you adopt an identity, you're unconsciously saying, all the other identities are worse. My identity is special. Welcome to nationalism, racism, sexism. My identity is better. My identity is special. My people is special. My race is special. Problem causes problems. Instead, I'm unique. There are many unique flowers. No one is better than another. All we are doing is coming into our uniqueness. All that gets in the way of uniqueness is preconceived ideas, identity matrices, other people's shit getting in our way. So let it go. <laughs> yeah, so important. Let it go, let it go. And when you think you've let go enough, let it go yeah. even more. <laughs> let go of letting go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Amazing thing to leave everyone with. My question that I like to ask 
everyone that's been on the podcast so far and everyone that will come on the podcast and share their wisdom as you have today is what makes you human to the fullest? Well, I'll give two answers. Functionally, breath does. Breathe less, you'll feel less human. Breathe more, you'll feel more human. I promise you, try right now. Slouch over, take really tiny breaths or hold your breath. Tell me if you feel more or less alive. And then take a couple deep breaths. Tell me if you feel like you're living to the fullest. So on the functional level, breath. On the bigger level, I'd have to come back to joy. Joy is up there in terms of words. I don't want to put any word on a pedestal because that will create attachment and then preconceived ideas, and then we'll diminish the thing in and of itself. But if we're using words to describe the most, most bestest state of being, I like joy. That's wonderful. You've given listeners so many ideas and modalities and realms to explore not only how to access joy within themselves, but what joy might look like for them. So thank you. Is there anything else you are feeling called to share? And I would also love for listeners to be able to find you on Instagram, on your website, in any offerings you are hosting or have on a weekly basis. So there are any offerings or anything else you're feeling called to share, I would love to open up the space for you to do so. So if you're looking to find me, I'm sure this will also be in the show notes, but the kind of one place to go, introspectivemethod.com, as in inner perspective, introspective. And that will have the links to my Instagram, all that, all that jazz, in addition to Sound Observer, which is a sound meditation practice I do with my partner. And our website there will just be linked under sound meditation. We have two monthly sound meditations in Park Slope area, which is near where I live. First Thursday of every month at Yogis and Yoginis in Park Slope. The last Thursday of every month at Brooklyn Flow. These are sound meditations, which we didn't get into too much. But if you're curious about me, offerings that I have, and experiencing any resonance that you felt in person, these are a great opportunity to do that. And then every week, now at Angles Wellness, Lower East Side, we do the breathwork experience that Sasha and I met at. It's every Wednesday, 7.45, an hour and change. Come on through. I promise you it will be memorable. In terms of other offerings, just check the website every once in a while. We have new stuff coming up, newer meditations, some other places doing breath work. We have some potential collaborations with yoga teachers, other sound facilitators, other people working with other modalities, and would love to see you in person. Human to humans, great. Thank you for sharing, and I will link all of that in the show notes. Any final thoughts you'd love to leave our listeners with? Well, I'd say thank you to you for holding this space, taking initiative, setting this up, being curious about my class, following up, bringing me on again. As I started with, it really is a joy to be able to share to you, to a receptive audience, these practices, which have meant so much to me. It's uh, sharing and talking about it to new and different people is one of the ways that I deepen my practice. 
I can see a reflection of myself in offerings and sharings. And it's great when someone does all the legwork to get that ready. And all I got to do is open up Zoom. So thank you very much. And thank you for your insightful questions and pointing and direction and guidance of the conversation. One thing I would leave your listeners with is take five deep breaths every morning. Really give it a try. If it doesn't work, email me. I've never seen it not work. I have never seen someone do five deep breaths every day for a month and not have it turn into something bigger. Well, thank you so, so much for your kind words. And thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and not only your background, but also truly the systems and processes behind these modalities. I think it is so profound to hear more in depth how they work and also enabling listeners to empower themselves and to take these practices into their own hands in a loving and thoughtful way rather than in a forceful way. So thank you so much for sharing your background and all your years of wisdom and opening the door for people to start to explore these concepts with themselves. So I am deeply, deeply grateful for your time and for the intentionality with which you spoke and everything you shared. So thank you so, so much. Thank you. Ah, wasn't that an amazing conversation? Thank you all so much for your time and your energy, taking this opportunity to listen to Adrian share his teachings. As you can tell from this conversation, one key point or item I'd like to highlight is that you are your own guru. All of the answers are within you. You are your own best guide. The different frameworks and lenses of analyses that we discuss here are all opportunities for you to connect with your own inner wisdom. As Adrian said, there are no teachers, only teachings. And I think that is a great opportunity to look inwards and see how you might apply the teachings around you, the modalities around you to access your inner wisdom and tune in with yourself. Hopefully this conversation sparks some excitement around breathwork, around meditation, around different healing modalities and offered you some tools on how to actually feel it to heal it and how to adjust your language so that you can become a co-creator of your reality. Thank you so much again for your time and for your energy. I am so excited to see you back here next week. You know where to reach me on Instagram at Unfiltered Sash. Talk soon. <laughs>